Well, good morning, Stateville Church. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 7, and we are going to start in verse 13, Matthew 7, verse 13. Um, not too long ago, I was at the funeral of a friend of mine, and as far as I knew, this person uh, didn't claim to be a Christian, uh, didn't care much about spiritual things at all, yet at the funeral, the priest stood up and said, we can be confident that this individual is in a better place. And I remember thinking, and I was sitting next to my friend who was also not a Christian, and I remember thinking, looking at the casket going, I'm not as confident in this person's eternal destiny as this priest is. And I don't know if you've ever been there before, but being at a funeral like that is sobering. There's not going to be any levity in this message today, and there shouldn't be. I'm not going to tell any jokes. It's a serious message, because this is the question that we have in front of us today is the heaviest question that could ever be asked. And it's the question, is hell real? And I really do believe that through a myriad of circumstances, which I don't have time to explain, God, throughout the past three weeks, has been forcing me to feel the weight of a message like this, to feel what is at stake if hell really exists? And that's been my prayer for every single one of you here as well and those listening online, is that we would feel the weight of what it means if hell is real. So if you have your Bible, let's jump into it. Matthew 7, verse 13. And this is at the very end of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the last thing that Jesus wants his listeners to hear. This is the last thing he wants to have ingrained into their minds. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jump down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that is the final day of judgment, the great white throne, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." There, there is no thought more sobering than to contemplate the existence of hell. I think we would all agree with that. Whether you're a Christian or an atheist, we all agree 
Hell is serious. The reason is because if hell is real, then what that passage is saying is that there are many, he said it multiple times, many, many of you in this room here this morning that will hear those words of Jesus spoken to you on the final day of judgment. And if that's the case, then honestly, we don't have much time to find an answer to see if there's an escape from this type of place. And I think, as I was mulling it over the past week, what's the best way to go around about answering this type of question? And I think the best way to answer is by asking three separate questions. And the first one is, is hell biblical? Is hell biblical? Then secondly, is hell reasonable? And then lastly, is hell escapable? So that's the three questions that we're going to ask. Let's start with the first question. Is hell biblical? What does the Bible actually have to say about this place that we call hell? And here's the first thing I want you guys to see. I got a, I got a list of them. And here's the first one. I want you guys to see that hell is a real place of judgment. It is real. Hell is oh so real. It's not a fictional place. Too often we view hell like people used to view Mars back in the ancient times, right? They knew what it was, but, or they didn't know what it was, rather. They just thought it was just some distant mystery red dot in the sky that they worshipped as a god. But, but today, our view of this planet has changed, right? We know it's real. We know that there's mountains on it. We know that there's valleys and that you could theoretically walk on I think this is exactly what our view of hell needs to happen. We need to change our view. Hell, there it is. Don't be surprised if there's demonic opposition when you are speaking on hell. (laughs) You may laugh, but I'm serious. Hell is a place that does not exist only in our imagination. It's not out there in the ether somewhere. It's not just this dreamy nightmare. Hell is a real place. It is as real as the ground under your feet. And Jesus made this abundantly clear in the Gospels. He said in Matthew 8, And in Matthew 22, he calls hell that place. And in the famous story of the rich man and Lazarus, where where Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man goes down to hell, the rich man is in agony, and he says he doesn't want his brothers to come to this place of torment. Hell is not a nightmare that just exists in your brain. Hell is a real, real place of judgment that thousands and thousands of people are being thrown into right now as I speak. And it's a place that that some of you may be standing one day. Hell is a real place. 
Hell is also a place of fire and darkness. These two contrasting elements, fire and darkness, are some of the most common used to describe hell. In Mark 9, 47 and 48, Jesus says, It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In 2 Peter 2, 4, Peter says, And God has cast them, that is the demons, into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Now, I want you to listen because this may be new for some of you. In my studies, I've found that John Calvin, Martin Luther, J.I. Packer, D.A. Carson, R.C. Sproul, John Gerstner, C.S. Lewis, and many, many more people who are way smarter than me love God, know their Bibles. They all agree that the images used to describe this very, very real place called hell are symbolic. Now, some of you are sitting in here and you go, that's good news. Just dodged myself a fiery bullet right there. But before you take a sigh of relief and think that that in any way makes hell more tolerable, ask yourself this question. What do we use symbols for when it comes to explaining something outside of our realm of experience? Think about that. I'll say it again. What do we use symbols for when it comes to explaining something outside of our realm of experience? I think I have a biblical example of that, and it's when the apostle John saw the glorified Jesus in Revelation 1. Here's what he says. He's describing Jesus, and he goes, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many Waters. Do you see what he's doing here? John is saying, I don't know how to describe this experience. Jesus is far greater, far more amazing than I could actually ever put down on paper. I cannot put into words just how amazing this experience of coming into the glorified Jesus is. So the only thing that John can do is use a lesser symbol like water or a lesser symbol like snow or white, a lesser symbolic language to describe something that is far greater than the symbols themselves. Are you following with me when it comes to hell here? I believe this is exactly what's happening with the language used to describe hell. And for those of you who think that this may be good news, you're wrong. If that's true then all you learn about the symbols of these, of these words is that they, the reality of hell is far worse than the symbols themselves. Now I want you to think about that. Fire, burning, gnashing of teeth, torment, 
agony, smoke, gloomy darkness. These are all words that describe a suffering that is far worse than the words themselves. We cannot, as humans, we cannot grasp the horrors of hell. In fact, the language, fire and darkness, these symbols draw our attention to the fact that hell is a place of incomprehensible suffering, right? I cannot comprehend, I cannot grasp how the light from fire and complete gloomy darkness can coexist in the same way that I cannot grasp the horrors that await any person who enter into hell. This is one of those things that God has just been beating me up with. We so often, we just want to know, what does hell look like? Listen, God is far less concerned that we grasp hell's details and far more concerned that we fear hell's reality. You believe that? The horrors of hell are incomprehensible to the human mind. Hell is also eternal. It's, it's popular today to deny the eternality of hell uh, with views like annihilationism and universalism, and they only give me 30 minutes up here, so I'm not going to dig into all those. Probably will in the podcast later this week. But the biggest problem with those views is that Scripture doesn't teach them. They don't seem to be biblical. Scripture seems pretty clear that heaven lasts, or hell, rather, lasts forever. Jesus says, or Revelation 14.10 and 11 says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The combination of those words, forever and ever, are the strongest Greek phrase one can find to indicate the eternality of time. The writer's trying to make a point right here. He's saying it's not just forever. It's forever and ever. From age to age. And Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 25, 48. He contrasts the eternal hell with the eternal heaven. He says these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is clearly saying here that hell will last just as long as heaven does. And aren't we glad that heaven lasts for forever? Amen. Hell will last just as long. And he wants us to know that we should all take that warning to heart. I remember as a boy just thinking about that word forever, letting that just run through my head forever and ever and ever. Hell is eternal. Hell is also a lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14 and 15 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're thrown into a lake, you are completely submerged in water. Right? Can you picture that in your head? Completely submerged. Not a single inch of your body is dry. 
Well, in the same way, the one who is thrown into the lake of fire is completely submerged in real, conscious, eternal suffering and agony. Mark Twain once said, I'll take heaven for its climate and hell for its company. Unfortunately, that is how so many people think of hell. Right? They think of hell as just, it's just a place that I'll go have some fun. I'll be doing, why would I want to worship the angel? Why do I want to worship God with, with the angels? I just want to go do what I want to do. Listen to me. If that is how you see hell, you are dead wrong. In hell, there is no good company. There is no escape. There is no relief, no satisfaction, no pleasure, no joy, no laughing, no end. If you die and you are thrown into the lake of fire, you are completely submerged in a lake of agony. Hell is a lake of fire. Hell is also, and lastly, not equal. And God really did a work on me thinking about this one. Matthew eleven twenty three and 24 says, And you, Jesus is talking, and he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted up into heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is a term of comparison. Jesus is saying that the sins of the people in Capernaum will result in worse punishment than the punishment for those in Sodom. I want you to think about this. Just think about your own life, especially if you're not sure if you're saved. Every single sin you've ever committed, every single Word, careless word, as Jesus says in Matthew 12, careless word that comes out of your mouth or is even thought in your head. Every single sin will be accounted for and will be added to your punishment, resulting in a greater suffering on the day of judgment. Jonathan Edwards said this when thinking about this concept. He said, hell is a place where you would give up everything you ever had here on earth just to have sinned one less time. Now you think about that tonight. Hell is a place where you would give up everything, all of your successes, all of your pleasures that you've ever had just to have sinned one less time. And isn't that what the rich man was doing in the story in Luke 16? It wasn't he saying, oh God, I am in so much agony in these flames. Will you just send Lazarus to dip his finger? He didn't say a bucket. He just said a finger. Dip your finger in water and place it on my tongue. I just need a little bit of relief. This is the future of a biblical hell. Is hell biblical? I don't think you can doubt that. Hell is biblical. But at this point, there may be some of you who'd go, that's why I cannot buy into Christianity, because hell is biblical. It's so clear. The Bible teaches about hell, and that's why I can't believe it. Because if God really did love us, and he really was loving, how could he send people to a place like that? 
So let's answer the next question. Is hell reasonable? And for any of you who would think that way or, or have those questions, I would start by saying this. Our hearts desperately want hell to exist. Did you know that? They desperately want hell to exist. There's something inside of us that cause our hearts to cry out against injustice. We desperately want a world in which no one gets away with wickedness, right? When someone is being wicked, we get enraged, right? When Jeffrey Epstein just so happens to die in his cell, we just get enraged. We go, that's not justice. He deserved worse than that. But ask yourself the question next time you're upset with something like that, why? Why do you get upset like that? Why do you get worked up about injustices? Because if there is no place of ultimate judgment for the wicked, then what hope do we have for true justice? Did Hitler get justice? Seems to me that he, he kind of did whatever he wanted during his reign, and then he killed himself peacefully. Is that justice? I think all of us go, no, no, he deserved worse. He deserved a further punishment. Read between the lines. It seems to me that instinctively we know hell must exist if there is to be true justice. Genesis 18, 25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is yes. The judge of the earth does do what is right. Hell does not make God an unloving God. It makes him a just judge. It makes him a good judge that punishes unrighteousness, that punishes wickedness. No one will get away with what they do here in this earth. No one. Now, to this point, you may object and say, but I'm not Hitler, right? I'm not Hitler. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a decent person. So, John, tell me, why do I deserve an eternal punishment for a temporary rejection of this God? I get it. If he exists, maybe I do deserve to go to this place. But why forever, John? Why? It's a good question. Let me give you two reasons why. The first one is because God is holy, if that's true, then that makes your small sin a very big deal. A murderer does not spend 10 minutes in prison because it takes him 10 minutes to kill someone. That's not how punishment works. We recognize that on a human level. The length of your punishment is not based on the longevity of your rebellion. It's based on the severity of your rebellion. You catch that? And even one act, follow this, even one act of rebellion against an eternally holy God is, is, is deserving of an eternal punishment. Paul said that in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, every single one of us, and every single one of us, because of our sin against a holy God, we have fallen short of his glory. I heard someone once say, the real mystery is not that a holy God would exercise justice against a rebellious people. That's to be expected. The real mystery is why God, through generation after generation, tolerates rebellious people. Your small sin against a holy God is a big deal. The second reason why I think 
you deserve an eternal punishment if you reject him, is that when you go to hell, you continue to rebel against God. So you have this idea that, that people in hell want a relationship with God, that they're there and saying, I want you, Jesus. That's not what's happening. The ones who go to hell are those who have day in, day out, put their hand up to God and said, no, God, I'm rebelling against you. I don't want you. I don't want you. I want what I want. I'm a better God than you. I don't want you. And then Paul says in Romans 1:24, he says, God will give them over in their sinful desires. He will give them up to what they want. Listen, if you're here today and you don't desire the loving kindness and loving mercies of God in your life, if that's something you don't want, eventually, God's going to give you what you want. He's going to hand you over to your desires. And you will spend an eternity rebelling against God. C.S. Lewis famously said, I believe that the damned are in one sense successful Rebels to the end, and that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Hell is an incomprehensible place of horror that all of us, according to Paul in Romans 3.23, all of us are headed on, headed to. So the next question should be, is hell escapable? if there's still time. The essence of hell is being separated from the mercies of God and having the full weight of his just wrath being poured out upon you. That is what hell is. But it is escapable. On the cross, Jesus took on the essence of hell. Jesus took on hell when the Father forsook him and poured out his just holy wrath onto Jesus so that he could absorb our sin. 2 Peter 2, 24 and 25 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are all like sheep on, a, on the broad gate all the way. We are straying away like sheep, like Isaiah says. We're all on that wide road leading to destruction. And if you want to escape the reality of hell, you must enter through the narrow gate. You must enter through the narrow gate. And this is a gate that you cannot go in with somebody. You have to come in alone. This is an individual decision you have to make with your creator. You cannot go in with your church. You cannot go in with your pastor. You cannot go in with your family, your kids. You must make this decision by yourself. This narrow gate is a gate that you cannot go in with your baggage. You cannot go in saying, like the Pharisee that we learned last week, I'm good enough to get in. That's good works. That's self-righteousness. You have to leave that at the door. You must come 
come to the narrow gate humbly. You must come repentant, broken of your sin, trembling with the full recognition of your unworthiness and your inadequacy to enter heaven on your own. And only then, only then, will you be able to escape the future of hell and only then will Jesus give you what you need most, which is his righteousness, his perfection. And he's offering it to you, every single one of you who don't have it. He's offering it to you as a free gift through your faith in what he was doing on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. So to end, what should our response be to hell? Well, if you're a Christian, your response should be to fear God. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is something that really hit home with me. I was just thinking throughout my preparation of that Matthew 7 passage where there are going to be people standing before Jesus and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And inevitably, there are going to be people that invoke my name as a reason for why they think they should be getting into heaven, but in reality, they're going to hell. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't I know John? Didn't, didn't John... Didn't, John, didn't I learn under John's preaching? Didn't, didn't I do a Bible study with John? Wasn't John my neighbor? Wasn't he my coworker? Why didn't he say something to me, God? I want to be able to say, and I hope if you're a Christian, you want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, for those around you in your life, what he said in Acts 20, I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, and that includes hell. If you know the horrors of hell as a Christian, and you know the glories of God's mercy, and yet you refuse to tell others, all you're showing is that you love yourself far more than you love God and far more than you love others. You have been saved from hell. Do you love people enough to tell them about that salvation? As a Christian, fear God. And if you're someone in here who is not a Christian, someone in here who's never understood what the purpose of the cross was, that Jesus was taking on the wrath that was on our heads, and he was taking it on the cross so that we might have his perfection. If that's something you've never understood before, then here's how you should respond. Fear God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, hell is a real, unnatural place of incomprehensible suffering, and it is the eternal destiny of every single one of you in here who do not or have not called on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. And I'm here to just beg you, I'm pleading with you, don't go to hell. 
I'll finish with a, a, a theoretical fictional story about Satan. Uh, and he's having a conversation with uh, his demons, and he goes, how should I deceive the humans? And one demon stood up and he said, well, you can convince them that there is no God. To which Satan said, no, 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 it's ingrained inside every human that God exists, so that won't work. We got to think of something else. And the next demon stood up and said, we can convince them that there is no judgment, there is no hell. To which Satan said, no, 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 if they know God exists and they know that he's a just God and he must punish injustices, so that won't work either. And then Satan himself stood up and said, I know what I'll do. I'll convince them that there is no hurry. For some of you in here, your time is running out. As Revelation 18.10 says, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Don't wait. Hurry to the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is not a fun message, but it is a message that every one of us, Christian or non-Christian, needs to hear. And it is a topic that every single one of us must contemplate and think about, Lord. Lord, I pray that this message would be edifying for those who know you. Know God, I pray if there's a single soul in here who does not know you and this is their destiny, I pray that they would think hard about where they are going and that they would see how it is escapable. You've given us a way out, Lord. Lord, let them run to the cross. We love you in your son's name. Amen.